All right, good morning. It's good to see everyone and all your smiles. It's good to see you. All right, well, uh, we're excited as we continue to worship Jesus Christ this morning. I know that you are, and some of you is able to talk with you. This is your first time back after you know, this thing called a global pandemic has happened and so forth. And, and uh, just want to say again, we hear you on the mask thing. Really appreciate what you're doing to wear those. Um, it's not fun, but um, my experience has been so far, of course, as I'm not wearing a mask right now, but I was earlier and I have through the music sets and all of that, but it, it, is, uh, it is much better than sitting at home. I would say that in my opinion. So um, it's so good to see all of you. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> And uh, all of you who are sitting at home, we love you too, and we, uh, we love that you're watching and totally get everybody's got to pray through this and figure out the best thing that everyone wants to do. Those of you over in North, it's good to see you as well, at least, or you can see me, or however that works, it's good to have you here. Um, but we're going to continue to seek after the Lord through the Bible, and uh, would you open those up with me really quick here and turn in the book, the first book of the Bible, it's Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 15 today, if you have an app or so forth. You can use those as well. You're going to be able to understand it a lot more if you have a Bible in your own hand. And so I want to remind you as you're finding that, that we do have another live Q&A about Genesis 15, about the sermon that we'll be doing right after this service. And so if you're tuned in online, you can just keep it on the channel and then it'll come up. Or if you're here, you can for sure leave or you can stay and and hang out and have that. So um, you can also text the number on the screen uh, right here if you want to be able to ask any question about the text about the sermon, okay? So I'm looking forward to that time. All right, so let's get our context. What has happened before we jump into chapter 15? Uh, What happened last week in chapter 14? We had these four Mesopotamian kings that came from modern-day Iraq. They traveled over to modern-day Israel, and they have uh, conquered uh, Abram's nephew and his family. They've taken them captives. Well, Abram catches wind of it. He chases them down. He defeats them by the power of God. He sets them, the captives free. Uh, he comes back, and then there's two kings that come out to meet him. There was Melchizedek, who's also a priest of God, and Melchizedek blesses Abram for being faithful to God. Uh, but then the king of Sodom comes and tries to steal the glory away from God's victory, and Abram, being a friend of God, guards the glory of God. And so overall, what we learned last week is some ways that you and I can glorify God in our lives. So if you missed that, it's online. You can check that out. Today, here's what we're going to see. The big picture is this. How can you and I trust in the Lord? How can we trust in the Lord with our lives? And so with that said, let's jump right into chapter 15, verse 1. And um, here it is. It says, after these things, everything I just said, all of that, all those events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And so again, God is writing the fact of the events that he has just defended and protected Abram in these battles. And he's like reminding Abram again, listen, I'm going to be a shield to you. I'm going to protect you. And are you going to continue to trust in me as your protector? And the same thing for you and I as God's people, are we going to trust in the Lord as our protector, as our defender, as our shield? Because that's what God promises to be to us. You know, this concept of God being described as a shield protecting his people was written by a bunch of other people throughout the Bible. One of those was King David. In fact, King David said, El my gain, El my gain, God is my shield. And actually today, this is really cool. You ever notice the flag of Israel? That's what we call the Star of David. It's also on their jets. It's on some of their military equipment and so forth. And what that actually is called is the Mygain of David, the shield of David, the shield of God, the God of David. They are still as a nation claiming and trusting that God is going to protect them as their shield. It's pretty cool. And so when I think of the concept of a shield, there's a lot of fun memories and things that come in my mind. One of those is, believe this or not, my first ministry... I served at one of my roles, I got to start and run a paintball ministry. 
It was a blast shooting people for Jesus. It's, it's, it's great. And uh, we had a lot of fun. And one idea that we had was, let's make some uh, shields out of plexiglass, something like, like this. As you can see, there's actually someone behind there and there's other people. And it, it really helped an advantage in the, in the battles because obviously they can't shoot through that. And, and so then you're getting people behind and, and you really could make your way pretty far using these shields. Um, but um, honestly, they didn't work perfectly because eventually one team realized if we put all of our firepower on this plexiglass shield, all of a sudden it started breaking up and disintegrated and then it was over, okay? Uh, another weakness of a shield like this, any kind of shield that's just right here is it's only one, one angle, right? Someone could flank you from the side. They could come from behind. They could be in a tree and shoot you from the top. So when God says he's a shield, he's, he's a lot more effective than that kind of shield. Maybe it's more like this, uh, a force field, right? That's surely what God had in mind, uh, you know, but like a force field where, where it's protecting you from every angle possible. You see, God is saying, I'm going to be the invincible shield and protector in your life. And so what does God protect us from? Well, at least a couple categories. One is God can protect us from physical danger. Now, let me make this clear. Does God promise he will always protect his people from physical harm? No, that's not what you see. In fact, the same God says, some of you, my will for your life is you're gonna die for me as a martyr, okay? And so then you have everything in between that. And, and so it's not a promise that God gives to all of us. He's gonna protect us physically in every situation. On the other hand, can God protect us physically? Yes. And does he welcome us to ask him to protect us? Absolutely. And so the, the thing is, are we gonna trust that God's gonna protect us physically and ask him to do so if that's his will. You know, and so maybe if, you know, sometimes I hear people say, I think God's calling me to serve him in a dangerous place. Maybe he wants me to go, whether short-term or long-term, to serve in an inner city scenario or overseas in some war zone or whatever that is. But the question is, if that is what God is calling us to do, are we going to trust in the Lord to be our shield and to protect us physically if that's his will? Well, the other category, at least one of the categories that God does protect his people, and this one is guaranteed, promised, is from spiritual danger and harm, from spiritual demonic forces that exist in this world. God promises all throughout the pages he will protect his people from such spiritual harm. Let me just share with you one passage that God says that. It says that you Christians were from God, little children, that's a term of endearment. And what, listen to what he says. He says, and you've overcome them. The them in the context of this passage are demonic spiritual forces, evil spirits. We have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he who is in you. Help me out, Christian Family Chapel. If you're a Christian, who is living in us? Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, right? He lives inside of us and he is greater than who? He who's in the world, the he who's in the world there is talking about Satan, who is the most powerful demonic force. And so God is saying, listen, if you are my child, I am living in you and I will be your shield and you have nothing to worry about from demonic forces in your life because I am greater than he who's in this world. Amen to that? And so the next time that maybe God is working something out where we got to enter into a, a scenario where there might be some spiritual warfare involved and demonic forces, maybe you're trying to share the gospel with someone of the occult or of other religions that might have some demonic spirits involved or witchcraft or whatever. Honestly, God's people, we, sh we should never be afraid to do that. We should never be afraid of spiritual forces. Because God is in us and he who's in us is greater than he who's in the world. God is our invincible shield. Did Jesus ever have to trust in, in the Father to protect him as a shield? Absolutely. Now, of course, we know Jesus, the will of God, the Father for Jesus was not to protect him physically. It's actually to let him die on a cross for our sins. But as Jesus did die on that cross for our sins, he trusted the Father to protect his soul as he descended into hell, as he grabbed the keys away from Satan. He trusted that the Father was going to bring him back, didn't he? And what happened? Three days later, 
the Father raised his son from the dead and you and me today can be forgiven of our sins because he trusted the Father to be his shield through that. And so let's make sure we also trust the Lord to be our shield and our protector. All right, well, let's go on now. We're gonna see God's gonna promise Abram three specific promises in our text. Look at it with me, verse two. And so Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Elizer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have, since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And so what's going on here is God just said, I'm, I'm going to give you a great reward. And he's already told him he's going to give him descendants and all this kind of stuff. And so Abram's kind of coming back to that and saying, God, what's going to be my reward? I don't have a child who's going to take the legacy of things, as you said, and said, I've got my next male relative is this guy named Elizer, you know? And so he's like kind of questioning God in that sense. And so what does God say in verse four? Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, God says, this man shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And so here's the first promise. He's already given it before. He's reiterating it. God is saying to Abram, I'm going to give you a descendant, a child. And it's not just any child or anything. In the, it's, it's at an old age. You see, Abram's at least 75 years old when he's being told this. Imagine if you're 75 years old, you and your spouse, and God comes and says, you guys are going to have a child. That, that's a miracle, okay? And uh, that's what God is promising. And so that's the promise he reiterates to Abram once again. Well, let's go on, look at verse five, and we're gonna see a second promise that God promises Abram. And it says, God took him outside. So apparently they're in a tent or something and says to him, now look toward the heavens. Now, if you're at home right now and you're thinking, what's wrong with my screen? No, it did get dark in here on purpose, okay? Because what's on our screen here? What are we looking at? What would Abram have looked at? As he went outside at night, he's looking into the heavens, he would have seen a bunch of stars. This specifically is the Milky Way galaxy, just a section of space. And you know how many stars scientists are guessing exist just in this galaxy? at least to 100 to 150 billion stars. And again, that's just guessing. And so that's what Abram's looking at. And so when we go back to that, God says to him, look up to the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them, Abram. It's a rhetorical question. God knows that he can't count them. And God says to him, so shall your descendants be. And so here's the second promise is he's promising not just one descendant, but many, many descendants after him. So not just will his descendants survive, they will thrive is what God is saying. And so what's Abram's response to these two promises? He's heard these before, God's reiterating them. And it says that Abram believed in the Lord. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram's like, all right, God, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with this. I, I trust you. You know, let, let's go. Let's do this. Well, then what happens? Well, we get a third promise from God. Look at verse seven. So God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. All right, what's going on here? Well, I've got a map to help us understand what's Ur of Chaldeans, okay? So this is the modern map of, of, of the Middle East. Uh, here we have uh, modern-day Iraq, and the land of Ur would have been way over here on the eastern side. This is where Abram was when God said to Abram, hey, pick up your family and travel west. I'm not going to tell you exactly where, just go west. And so he trusted the Lord, and he traveled, and he made his way to what is modern-day Israel. That is where he's standing right now when God is talking to him in our text, and God is saying to him, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. They will rule it, okay? The land of Israel. Now, how much land are we talking here? Well, if you want on your own, you can read the bottom of chapter 15. God goes through, starts giving you a bunch of boundaries about that land. Later on, you can read that. But let me just show you a perspective of how much land. Here's a map. The orange is modern day Israel. This is overlaid by a map of the eastern coast, 
And the land that God was promising was at least starting with this amount, it would have been all of Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, and a good portion of Pennsylvania, okay? The point is this, God is promising his descendants a lot of land, and this land is not just empty from people. There's a lot of people living in these lands. So when God says, hey, your people, your descendants, there's only you and your family right now, but you're gonna have all these descendants and they're gonna rule all this land someday and all these other people are gonna be gone somehow. That's the promise, right? The promise is the land of Israel. And so then what's Abram's response to this third promise? Is it like the first two? Okay, God, I trust you, let's go. Yeah, look at verse, look at verse eight. And so Abram said, oh Lord God, um, how, how may I know that I will possess it? You see, this promise kind of gets him maybe wondering and, and questioning uh, if God's actually gonna, how, how's God gonna fulfill this? Again, he's looking around, seeing all these nations living in this area. God, are you, are you really gonna do this? In a way, he's asking for a sign from God. Have you guys ever asked God for a sign in your life? Abram's kind of asking God for a sign to prove this. And so what does God do? Look at verse nine. And so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these out to God and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So God's like, you know what? I'm hungry. Let's have a barbecue. I'm like, what, what is going on here? Okay, let's be honest. We're 21st century Americans. God, he's asking for a sign. And God's like, go get all these animals and cut them up. I mean, what is happening here? Let me try to help us to understand. This made a lot of sense to Abram. What's going on here is that God is asking uh, Abram to set up a covenant to make a deal with him. This is how in the Middle East in those days, they made deals with one another, serious deals and covenants. All right. And so uh, that's what's going on. I got an image here to help, help us do this. I thought about reenacting this live, but I thought that might get me fired among a lot of other bad things that could happen. So, you know, hey, we'll just leave it there on an image. Okay. So, so here's what we got. We got all these animals. Of course, he cuts three of them in half and they would put them to the side like that. And of course, in the middle, it would be nasty and bloody and ugh, right? So that's what would happen as they would do this in that culture. Well, then as you can see, there's some footsteps here. Each person making the deal would walk through the bloodiness uh, either one at a time or they would walk at the same time, meet each other in the middle. And here's what they would be saying. They would say, I'm gonna fulfill my part. And if I don't fulfill my part of this deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Whew, that's a serious commitment, right? And that's the idea that's going on here is God is saying, let's make a deal. Now, let's focus more on the pieces, these animals, okay? So uh, three of them, it says that three of them are three years old, the three that are cut in half, why is that important? They're not old and they're not like still young and growing and getting bigger. They're in the prime as a species of, of, who the, of what they are, right? They're three years old. It also says one of the birds is a young bird. And so they're prime. Also, by definition, a heifer is a female cow who hasn't had any calves yet, but is able to reproduce. Of course, you got a female goat, they reproduce. And then you got the male ram, by definition, is not castrated, which means they can reproduce. Here's the big idea for all these pieces is either, these are the best animals that someone like Abram would have. They were the best to also bring him future income. And so God is saying, I want you, Abram, to give me the best that you have. Give me the best you have. And this is how God works in all of our lives even today. He is always asking you and I to give him our best in what we do. Now, why does God require the best from people? There's at least a couple reasons why. One, we're talking about God, the creator here. He doesn't deserve leftovers, right? He deserves our best. He's, he's God. He's worthy of it. But there's another reason why that I want to focus on is this, is that God, when he knows, when he's asking us to give our best, whatever that is that he's asking of us in our life, 
is he's also saying he wants us to depend on him, to trust in him, that he will make up for the cost of whatever the best cost to us in that sacrifice. In other words, he's saying to Abram, I want you to trust me with your best. And he's saying the same thing to you and I in our lives, that when we give him our best, that are we going to be able to trust in the Lord to make up for the price of the sacrifice that it cost us to give our best? Let me try to help bring this home. Okay, here's a scenario. We, we know, you know, there's a Christian. They know that uh, we need to seek the Lord. God's called us and invited us to seek him through reading the Bible. And um, also as we read the Bible, not only do we get to know Jesus and become like Jesus, but also we can prepare to share Jesus and the gospel with other people. And so this is a, 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 a spiritual discipline God's called us to do. And so there's a difference though between someone who says, hey, I'm gonna go through my day and I'm gonna spend all my time doing the things that I need to do and doing all the time of what I want to do. And then if I have any leftover minutes at the end of the day, then I'm gonna give those to seeking the Lord and reading the Bible and praying, all right? I can't tell you how many times, if I had a dollar every time someone said to me, and said, all right, I don't understand. I, when I read the Bible, I just, I just fall asleep. And I'm like, can I ask you, when are you reading the Bible? Well, I'm doing it when I'm going to bed, you know? It's like, of course you're falling asleep. You're, you're giving the Lord your leftovers, right? There's a big difference between that and then someone else who says, what? Uh, I'm gonna think ahead of time. When's my prime hours of a day that I am like working on Mach 10? That I'm the fullest aware mentally and emotionally and physically and everything. Okay, I'm going, now some of you, that's first thing in the morning. God bless you. That's not me, okay? I do in the morning, I'm falling asleep, okay? So whatever it is for each of us, it's different. But I'm gonna give the Lord some time out of the best hour of my day to seek him. And then it doesn't stop there. And then I'm gonna trust at the end of the day what I didn't get done, I'm gonna trust the Lord's gonna make up for it somehow because the Lord deserves my best. Do you see? Did Jesus ever have to trust the Father by giving his best? Yes. Jesus gave his life. He gave his life as part of the plan that the Father asked him to do. And as he gave his best, though, what happened in the end? The Father raised him from the dead you and I now can be forgiven from our sins. And now where's Jesus sitting? At the right hand of the Father, back where it all started. And so Jesus is saying to you and I, listen, I have trusted the Father to give the best and, and you, trust the, you trust us, give us your best and we'll make up for whatever the costs are that it took. Let's make sure we do that just like Jesus did. All right, so what happens? Abram, Okay, he lays out all this, this mess, right? He, he, he does all these sacrifices, these butchers. He's got a mess. And then what happens in the text? Abram's like, okay, God, I, I did it. It's a lot of work. It's a mess. I'm ready to make the deal. Hello? God, are you there? A lot of time goes by. You're like, how do you know that? It's actually right there. Look at it in verse 11. It says that the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram had to drive them away. So, so we've all seen the nasty vultures. Yeah, I mean, those are creatures that you're like, okay, God, now why did you make those? You know, but there's actually really good reasons why I made those. But, but the point is this, they're nasty. And, and, and here's the thing though, I don't know if you know this, how long it takes the vultures to come down onto a carcass. They don't just come down as soon as an animal dies because what draws them is the stench of death, okay? And so what happened is these were live animals. Abram sacrifices them, cuts them up and lays them out. And so hours are going by in the desert sun for these things to start smelling. And finally, now the birds of prey are coming, right? And so it's a long time and God just isn't anywhere to be found as Abram's waiting, well, then he keeps waiting. Check this out. Look at verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. So now the sun is down. He's falling asleep and God has still not shown up. Why? What's going on? I want, you know, it makes you wonder, like, is Abram sitting there thinking, God, are you pranking me? You know, God's up there like, look at that fool. He did all that work and that mess and I'm just not even going to show up. 
Uh, you know what I love about God? He doesn't play games with us like that, does he? He doesn't prank us. Instead, this is what God is doing for Abram. He, he wants Abram to keep trusting in him, even in the timing. And the same thing for you and I today, brothers and sisters, may we trust in the Lord with the timing when he, especially when he does not work as quick as we want him to, when we need him to, we think that we need him to, are we going to keep trusting in him? You see, that's what Abram did. He trusted the Lord in the timing. When the birds of prey came, Abram doesn't say, well, forget this, God, you're not showing up. I'm out of here right? Or later on when the sun's going down, he's like, whatever, you know, you didn't do your part, God, I'm leaving. No, he kept waiting on the Lord, didn't he? He waited so long trusting in the Lord that God was up to something that he literally fell asleep waiting on the Lord in the timing. And so let me ask us this this morning, what is it maybe that in your life, you know, God has called you to do something, but for whatever reason, God hasn't worked out the details for that to actually happen yet. And, and, and we're starting to wonder, like, God, when is this going to happen? Are we willing to trust in the Lord and the timing? Or maybe there's something we're praying for in our lives. And we know God may not answer it, but if he does, he just hasn't done it yet. And are we willing to keep trusting in him and keep seeking him in prayer and just trusting that whatever his timeline is, it's, it's the best. Are we willing to trust in the Lord and the timing? Did Jesus ever have to trust the Father in timing? Yes, he did. Okay, so help me out now. Where was Jesus before he came to earth 2,000 years ago? Where was he before that? Heaven, okay? And what's going on in heaven? He, he's being worshiped, rightly so, because he's, he's part of the triune God. So that's where he comes from. And so, but then he, the Father, and the Spirit, they make this plan to give salvation for us sinners, human beings. And so part of that, he's going to come from heaven to earth. Now, um, I love my life. I love a lot of things here. But on the other hand, this is a jacked up place down here on earth. Right? I mean, we, there's a lot of mess down here because I'm here and you're here. Let's just be humble in church today, right? And there's a lot of evil and there's a lot of sin. And so think about this. Jesus comes down out of being worshiped in the perfect place called heaven. He comes down here and he's having to deal with all of this mess. And so, now help me out. How old was Jesus when he was crucified on the cross for our sins? Help me out. Anybody know? About 33 years old, right? So think about that. Maybe he's 20 years old. And he's like, all right, Father, here's the deal. I know I got to keep waiting on the timing that you put, put for this thing, but I'm tired of being down here. And so I'm still going to go die in a car. I'm going to go get myself crucified. And I'm, I'm pressing fast forward on this thing because I'm tired of being down here. I want to get back up there, right? Now you say, well, what's the big deal if Jesus still dies on the cross where he's from the dead, you know, then salvation's still possible. How big is the timeline? Oh, man. The timeline is just as important as the death and the resurrection. Let me explain. For instance, how many times does Jesus say to people, my time has not yet what? Come multiple times through the gospels because here's what it is. The father laid out a plan uh, uh, of all history and then Jesus' life that he would die on a specific Passover feast, the one he died on, and that he would raise three days later on the exact day that he rose from, and that all these other details of the crucifixion and his life and all this stuff had to happen. And then he predicted, God predicted over 300 prophecies or predictions written in that Old Testament in our Bible hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. So if Jesus would have forced the timeline, not trusted the father on the timeline, he actually would have not fulfilled some of the predictions. And if he didn't fulfill some of the predictions, he would have disqualified himself from being our Messiah. And you and I would still die and go to hell forever and not go to heaven if he messed up the timeline. Do you see how important it is that the Jesus trusted the father in the timeline? Whew. Wow. So brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the thing. Jesus knows how to trust the Father in the timing. And he's offering to you and I that when it's hard and it's hard and it's hard to wait, he's saying, just ask me and I will help you. I will help you wait because God's timing is always better than ours, isn't it? And so let's, just, let's make sure we trust him in the timing. All right, well, let's go on. Let's see what happens next. Look at verse 12. So it says, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And so God said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And so God's getting, he's saying, hey, again, I'm going to give you the promises, uh, your descendants, and they're going to have this land. But until then, they're actually going to leave this very land that they're going to get. They're going to go become slaves for 400 years, but they're still going to get the land in the end. That's what God is saying. Why in the world is God saying this? Why doesn't God just give the Israelites the land now? Well, it actually comes back to the idea of God has a timeline of things. And so we're going to keep reading, and I'll bring it out, the, uh, the answer to that of the timing. Uh, let's go on. Look at verse 14. And so God continues. He says, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, your descendants. Who's the nation they were slaves under? Help me out. Egypt, right? So that's exactly what happens. He's predicting this. He says, and afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Then he says, as for you, you shall go to your father's Abram in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. So Abram's going to die. He's not even going to see the fulfillment of these promises. And then here's the timing. Catch this. Then in the fourth generation of your descendants, they will return here. For the iniquity or the sins, that's what iniquity means, sins of the Amorite is not yet complete. All right, here we are again. Who are these guys, right? What is God talking about? Here's a map. This will help us. This is modern. This is Israel and uh, the Dead Sea. Uh, This is part of Israel. And then right here, you got, this is modern day Jordan, just to give perspective. This orange area here in Abram's day is where this people group called the Amorites were living. And so here's what God is saying. Again, I have written out a whole plan to send a Messiah, a Savior, to make it possible for sinful humans to be saved from their sins someday. And in that big plan, in the middle of it, is I'm going to set apart a people group, Abram's descendants. And it's through them I'll bring the Messiah. And then I'm going to let them have an area of the land, which is Israel today, and I'm going to let them rule over that. And to help, when they rule that, the way they're going to do it is they're going to have to kick out who is currently there as part of his plan. But here's the catch. God will not kick out, God will not wipe out people groups just because. Okay, because when you go back to that verse, it says that the iniquities or the sins of the Amorites not yet complete. And so what, what, is, what God is saying is, maybe you've, maybe you've asked this question before, maybe you've heard someone say it. How could a good God tell his people to commit genocide? How could a good God tell his people to wipe out people and kick them out to get the land of Israel? Here's actually an answer to that. Are you ready? It's because God says, I am the uh, capital J judge of the world. And when a people group sins enough according to his measurements as the judge of the world, he has every right in a just and a holy way to punish them and bring wrath upon them. That's what God is saying. But he's also saying that there's some level, and only God knows, that if they haven't done it yet, it would actually be not right of God to kick them out or wipe them out. That's what God is saying. And so he's saying to Abram, listen, the reason I'm not going to let your descendants take over now and you people now is because this one people group, the Amorites, haven't sinned enough. Their sins and iniquities haven't piled up enough. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? And so that's the timing. That's why they're not going to do it now. But even then, I sit there and I think, okay, God, I get that. Um, You know, however that works, I trust you. That's how it works. But then um, why can't Abram and his family and his descendants just hang around for 400 years? Like, what's this whole slavery nonsense thing, right? Now, as far as I know in studying the scriptures, there's not a direct answer uh, of the reasoning behind God of why he's going to send them all into slavery and all this kind of stuff. But what we do know is a general answer of this. Why does God allow trials to happen to his people? Why does God allow trials to happen to his people? And so let me share with you just one passage about that in Romans 8, 28. This is gonna to speak to some people today. And we know that God causes all things, even 400 years of slavery for the Abram's descendants to what? To work together for the good to those who love God, to work together for our good 
to those who were called according to his purpose. But why? How is it good? You go on, verse 29, for those whom he predestined, I'm sorry, he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his son. See, God is always uh, using trials to make his people more like him. And that's clearly, obviously, a part of why God was gonna send them into slavery. He was gonna refine his people and make them more like himself. And so you can kind of say it this way, that God is just as much about the journey as he is about the destination with us, isn't he? For the Israelites, it kind of could be said this way. God is just as much about the character, their character, as he was about their conquest of the land in the end. Because God is always working, even through the trials. Brothers and sisters, are we going to trust in the Lord even through our trials in our lives? Are we going to trust the Lord that he's working in the trials of our lives? Let me ask you this. What trials are you going through in your life right now? I know all of us actually are going through a global trial called a pandemic, right? You know, some, maybe some have had it. Maybe you're watching online, you're like, I got it right now. That's why I'm home. And the rest of us, we're trying to dodge it, right? We're all affected by this thing. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you got cancer. Maybe it's a chronic pain that just will not go away. Maybe you've got um, family issues. People aren't getting along. It's just breaking your heart. Maybe your marriage is just collapsing. Maybe it's financial. You've lost your job through everything going on or whatever it is, right? Maybe some people are like, everything's just going wrong, Ryan. Just everything. But here's the thing Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, if you're my child, I'm working it out for good. I'm making you more like my son. Can you trust me in that? Will you trust me that I'm working? Did Jesus ever have to trust the Father through a trial in his life? Yeah. How about this? The worst trial that any human being has ever gone through or will ever go through is what Jesus had to go through. And it's way, way bigger than just the crucifixion and the flogging floor, as bad as those were. But you know what the worst part of Jesus' trial of his death was? It says that when he breathed his last breath, that all the sins of the world were put on him. All of my sins, all of your sins, he took them on himself because then he crucified them. He, he paid the price for them, but it was so dark of a moment that the Father God had to turn his eyes away from looking at Jesus. That's how hard that trial was. But Jesus trusted the Father through that trial, that the Father was up to something good. And what happened in the end? The Father raised him from the dead. And now you and I can actually be forgiven for all the sins we've ever done in our lives if we cry out to him. And so again, Jesus is saying to us, if you're my child, will you trust me through the trials that you're going through? And he can relate. And he, if, actually, if God can take the worst trial of all history and turn it to good like that, he can do the same thing with our trials. Amen to that, church? Amen. All right. Well, let's go on. We got one more thing we're gonna look at today um, in our passage. This is absolutely amazing. I wanna encourage you guys to stick with me. This, this is one of those mind-blowing things, okay? So let's check out what happens. Verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven. There's one thing and what? A flaming torch. There's the second thing which passed between these pieces, okay? So here we have again, the cut up animals, the blood in the middle. And now we've got two things going through the bloody part. We have smoke and we have a torch. Now, um, again, remember how a covenant was made is that each member of the party would go through the animals. Now notice who's missing going through the animals. Abram, he's not there. Why? Well, instead, what or who is going through? 
Well, actually, the smoke is God showing up as smoke. God is going through these animals, making a deal, showing up as smoke. When you read the Bible in the Old Testament, he shows up as smoke a lot. But then also God shows up a lot in the Old Testament as what? As fire. So God is showing up as fire as well, going through the animals. In other words, God is making a deal on behalf of Abram for Abram is what's going on. Now, why in the world is, is God doing that for Abram? Well, you know what we haven't talked about today is what's Abram's part of this deal of this covenant? Okay, we know what God's is. He's gonna give a descendant with many descendants and a lot of land and all this kind of stuff, right? But what was Abram's part of the deal? It's actually tucked in verse six. Let's go back to it. Check this out. It says that Abram believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as what? Righteousness. What does the word righteousness mean? Righteous, and it means perfect. In other words, God is saying to Abram, your part of the deal, you have to perfectly follow me. And this is said, and this applies to all of us, our, if we're going to make a deal with God, we have to be perfect and perfectly follow him with our lives. That's our part of the deal. And uh, look at this, other places in the scriptures, Leviticus says, God says, you need to be holy, which is perfect, for I, the Lord, your God, am perfect or holy. So we have to be perfect. That's what Abram had to do. We got a problem here, though. We already know Abram's not perfect. I mean, not long ago, we were learning about how he's lying to you know, save his own life and not protect his wife and all this kind of stuff. We know the rest of Abram's life, that he's, he's gonna sin a lot more. And, and we also know this in Romans chapter three, what? That there is no human being who's righteous is what Romans three teaches. Not one of us are righteous or perfect. None of us are following God perfectly. And yet we need to make a deal with God and our deal is to be perfect. We, we've got a problem here, don't we? But see, God knew that Abram couldn't make the deal and keep his part. So he stepped in and made a deal on behalf of Abram at that time. Now, why does that happen? How can God do that? How does that work? It actually goes back to verse six. Check this out. The reason that God steps in for Abram in this deal is because Abram believed in the Lord. You know what the word believe? means? It means trust. Abram trusted in the Lord. What did Abram trust in the Lord? Not just the promises of a descendant and many descendants in land, but we know from the rest of study in his life in scripture is that Abram also understood there was an ultimate promise God was promising Abram and many people in, throughout the history of mankind is that there was going to be a special descendant eventually who will come through Abram's line, that will somehow make it possible for you and I to be righteous when we're not. Somehow this descendant was gonna take away our sins and in return, give us the ultimate reward of the deal. And what is the ultimate reward? It's living with God forever face to face in heaven. That's the ultimate reward. You say, where do I get that from? Actually, God just promised it in our text. You might've missed it. Look at verse one. God says to him, don't fear, Abram. I'm gonna be a shield to you. And then he says, your reward shall be very great. You know what the translation technically actually says is that God says, I'm a shield to you. I am your very great reward is how it actually is said. God is saying, I will be your reward and your shield. Living with Jesus is the reward. It's much bigger than land. It always has been. It's much bigger than descendants for Abram. He knew that there was a big problem, that when he dies because of his sin, he's failed the deal with God. And the Bible teaches that we should get torn up, if you will, spiritually speaking, in a real place called hell. He knew that there was a big problem, but he also was trusting ahead of time that God was gonna fix it with one of his special descendants who we call the Messiah, who his name is now, we know, Jesus. And so God knew that he believed this. And so at that moment, God worked like a credit card. You know how a credit card works? You pay for something, but you're vouching you're gonna pay for it later. Right? And so God's like, I, I see your faith. I'm going to make the deal with you now. But then what happened 2,000 years after Abram's life? Jesus came. And when Jesus came and he died on that cross, get this. This is, this is fascinating. 
when Jesus died on that cross, I'm gonna go back to our image here. He became like the cut up animals. He became like you and me. He paid the price that we fail with our sin of making a deal with God of being perfect. And so he took the punishment that you and I deserve in this deal when he died on the cross for our sins. Wow. But it actually doesn't stop there. It gets way, way better. Check this out. Listen to how Jesus is described now today in Revelation. Revelation 19.13. It says that today Jesus is clothed with a robe dipped in what? In blood. Today in heaven. That's what Jesus looks like. Why in the world does Jesus have a robe with blood at the bottom where his feet are? This is so awesome. You see, when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he became us in the deal and he paid the price for us breaking the deal, okay? But it's like spiritually speaking that he, when he rose from the dead three days later, he like walked back around through the, through the animals here and he met the father in between and then made the deal with us, with God, to make it so we can get the ultimate reward, which is to go to heaven. And in a way, that's why his robe is messed with blood because he went through it for us. That's what that is. God is amazing. Jesus is amazing. And so what he's telling us is this though, you gotta trust in me as your reward. Are we gonna trust in Jesus as our reward? Let me say how it works. Just because Jesus did all this, which is awesome, doesn't mean that there's an automatic salvation for every human being. Just because you're watching right now online, you're over in North, you're here in South, you're like, that's awesome what Jesus did, so therefore I'm automatically forgiven. He did the deal for me, he paid the price for me. That's not how it works. He, he requires something of us, and that is this. We gotta be willing to trust. We have to believe all the stuff we just said that Jesus has done for us on the cross and the resurrection. And we've also got to say that we are going to give our life to him as our master and our king forevermore. Have you done that with your life today? Have you trusted Jesus to be your reward? Because once you do, he comes and lives inside of us and he gives us a peace that is absolutely mind-blowing. And you feel the weight of the sins that have been gone now because of him. He's forgiven you once for all. No matter how many sins you've done, I wanna make this really clear in case there's someone right now and you're saying, you know what, I, but you don't understand, I've done this one sin and I just don't think that, that Jesus would ever forgive me for that. Listen, the Bible says that there is no sin beyond his forgiveness, none. He has paid the price once and for all, done. All you have to do is just believe in that and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? I'm gonna live the rest of my life for you. And he'll become your reward right away. And when we die, we get to be with him forever face to face. Praise God. And so I don't know about you, but won't we stand and let's worship him. He is our shield and he's our reward. Though a thousand may fall at my side Though the enemy war against me I will not fear the terror by night I will hide in the shadow Your face.
says the Lord. We believe it. He says it. No weapon formed against me will prosper. Any questions you have from the text this morning, and I'm sure Ryan will be happy to answer any of those questions. But before we go, will we be blessed by God's word as his people? Listen to what it says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's say this together. Faithful is he who calls us, and he also will bring it to pass. God bless you.